back with another episode of the anarchist experience episode 366 aka year eight week 11 uh, coming at you this week as always i am your host mr richie rich along with mc ks ks from the road uh and since this is your live clubhouse show find us there uh the club name is the anarchist experience and you can raise your hand, participate in discussion if you wish. We do the live show around 4 p.m. Eastern time on Saturdays. So if you're around that time or if you at me at Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H, the number four, R-I-C-H, you'll get the little notification when I start the show um, and you can jump in there. Uh, not a big news week. I have headlines. So let's do them. I'll, I'll read through the headlines so you guys can start stewing over which ones you like. Um, but I'm going to start with this one. Uh, no guilty verdicts in alleged governor kidnapping plot. So interesting turn of events there. Uh, headline, a vicious cycle in blue police violence kills three people a day. Headline, Biden exploits Sacramento shooting to ban guns for Americans while sending billions in guns to Ukraine. Uh, headline, Police could have used a no-knock raid correctly. Instead, they knocked, then shot and killed a two-year-old hostage. Uh, headline, Hawaii officials considered new uses for virus screening tech. Uh, headline, chocolate company accused of profiting from child labor. Headline, big tech and free speech, how both the left and the right are wrong. Uh, headline, and now a really bad response to political calamity. Autarky headline California's terrible price gouging law puts markets at mercy of ambitious prosecutors. A headline Canada to ban foreigners from buying homes as prices soar. And finally headline officials seizing Russian yachts now may steal Americans property in the future. So start thinking about that as we go through this one. Uh, no guilty verdicts in alleged governor kidnapping plot. So this is one that we've covered uh, when it happened and then several weeks ago as these trials were going on. Um, the FBI, in their grand wisdom, dis decided to entrap a handful of people, allegedly, uh, in a plot to kidnap uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And we covered it, again, because it's one of those, the FBI creates a problem, then the FBI pretends to solve a problem, but in reality, there was no problem to begin with. And it just, it's theater on their part. Uh, so decent news uh, from RT.com. So good luck with the source on that one. Four men claiming they were enticed into bizarre conspiracy by the FBI go free. A jury in Michigan on Friday acquitted two men and was unable to return a verdict on two others who were accused of hatching a plot to kidnap and possibly execute Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. The FBI was heavily involved in the scheme, and the men argued that they were enticed into planning the kidnapping by a dozen agency informants. Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta were found not guilty of conspiracy, with Harris also acquitted on firearms and explosives charges. A mistrial was declared in the cases of the two other men, Adam Fox, Adam Fox and Barry Croft, meaning that while the pair walked free on Friday, the government can try them again in the future. We'll be ready for another trial. We'll eventually get to what we wanted out of this, which is the truth and the justice I think Adam is entitled to, Fox's attorney Christopher Gibbons told reporters after the verdicts were delivered. Our governor was never in any danger, considers lawyer Mich uh, Michael Hill, said outside the federal courthouse in Grand Rapids. The four men were arrested in October 2020 when an undercover FBI informant drove them to a warehouse where they were under the impression that they would be buying explosives. Instead, they were handcuffed and led away by waiting agents. A total of 14 men were arrested, 
while two others, Ty Garbin and Caleb Franks, pled guilty and testified during the trial, and eight others are awaiting trial in the state courts. The government contended that the group planned to abduct Whitmer from her vacation home, place her on trial, and sentence her to death, thus kicking off the second civil war. Defense lawyers argued from the onset that the men were set up by the FBI. Court documents revealed that at least a dozen confidential FBI informants took part in the alleged plot and that the suspects were easily manipulated by their undercover comrades. Fox, whom the government attempted to paint as the ringleader of the band, was referred to by Garbin as Captain Autism. And the four men's lawyers argued throughout the case that their client lacked the mental wherewithal to orchestrate a complex kidnapping plot. I keep trying to push press on them. Where are you guys wanting to go with this? Because I'm wanting to know, uh, are you wasting my time in a sense? One informant said during the operations to his FBI spears, suggesting that the agent was heavily involved in pushing the men to commit crimes. According to an an, uh, an analysis of court documents by Revolver News, a right-wing U.S. news site, the plotters, drivers, and explosive expert were both agents, while the malicious head of security was an undercover informant. An FBI source was present at every meeting leading up to the supposed kidnapping attempt, and of the five men who drove a van to kidnap Whitmer, three were FBI agents and informants. Agents also testified at length against Harris, Caserta, Fox, and Croft during their weeks-long trial. The case ignited intense debate in the U.S. about the supposed threat of domestic terrorism following the pro-Trump riot on Capitol Hill last January, which some suspect was also instigated by federal agents. Countering this alleged threat became a central pillar of the Biden administration's policy platform. In the months between the kidnapping plot and the Capitol Hill riot, the head of the FBI field office in Detroit, who oversaw the infiltration of the plot, Stephen D'Antono, was promoted to lead the agency's Washington, D.C. field office. Conservatives cheered Friday's result. Can't downplay what happened in Michigan today, pundit Jack... uh, uh, Posobiec wrote on Twitter, an FBI agent's testimony used to be an instant guilty verdict from juries. Now their credibility is such a disaster that they're losing cases that used to be slam dunks. Whitmer, a Democrat, saw things differently. Today, Michiganders are living through the normalization of political violence. Her chief of staff wrote in a statement, there must be accountability and consequences for those who commit heinous crimes. Without accountability, extremism will be emboldened. Uh, so there's the update. Any thoughts from either of you on the verdict or mistrial, as it were, on two of them? Uh, not surprising. <laughs> I think the the more absurd the claims are, uh, the more likely it's going to be a plot by the FBI. What if you're the two guys who, like, pled guilty? Like, oh, son of a bitch at that point. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, it said it in the article. I didn't know either. Sure. Oh, sure, sure. No, it said, I, just, uh, I mean, that's that's new information for me. Yeah. So. Well, again, I mean, we try to update as much as possible, but if I don't see the update, I don't read the news. <laughs> it's not like I. It's not like I follow this, uh, you know, with with a, a notification every time a new yeah. article comes out. It's like, hey, look at that, a new update, and let's talk about it. Uh, but yeah, fourteen people arrested. These at least two are off. Eight still awaiting and two foolishly pled guilty and I guess turned state's evidence because they testified in court at these trials. Good for them. Good for them, I guess. If you're willing, I mean, if you're willing to participate in that, you know, like knowing, knowing that it was a setup and you're like, nope, going to take my guilty verdict, going to help the state out. Like, you know, hard, hard for me to feel bad at that point. Hmm. Any other comments? No. Nope. All right, we're just going to move on then. Uh, I read all the headlines. Did any particular one jump out at either of you guys? Uh, no. All right. Where is this one then? Uh, a vicious cycle in blue because, you know, never a big fan of the police. Screw those guys. Uh, police violence kills three people a day. If you don't want to get shot, tasered, pepper sprayed, struck with a baton, or thrown to the ground, just do what I tell you. Quote from an officer with the Los Angeles Police Department. Police violence has not lessened. Police shootings have not abated. Police reforms have largely failed. In fact, according to the latest research, police violence kills three people a day. Despite all of this, President Biden wants to throw more money at America's police forces. Biden's $30 billion fund the police program, a signature part of his administration's $5.8 trillion budget proposal, 
aims to expand law enforcement and so-called crime prevention at taxpayers' expense. Essentially, Biden wants to fight gun violence with more gun violence. What Biden is really looking to do is score points with voters and police unions. Hence, Biden's political pushback against a call by activists to defund the police would pay for state and local governments to hire more cops, double the funding for community policing, bring on 300 new deputy marshals, staff guns, trafficking strike forces, and investigations into gun dealer compliance, prosecute hate crimes, and purchase more police body cameras. The problem, as far as I can tell, is not that police agencies lack money or cops on the beat. Indeed, as uh, Jamel Bowie writes in the New York Times, there is no pressing national need for greater police funding. If anything, police departments and their allies have skillfully used anxiety over defund to successfully lobby for even larger budgets. Despite the striking inability of many police departments to solve crimes and clear murders, as much as Biden and the police unions want us to believe that more police funding will translate to a decrease in violent crimes, research shows that there is no real correlation between crime rates and police budgets. While the defund the police movement was misguided in their messaging, it was never about stripping police of their funding. Rather, it was a call for greater accountability, better training, and overall reform. Biden's push to expand funding for the police without any assurance of significant reform in place could well encourage further police brutality. The unfortunate reality we must come to terms with is that American is, America is overrun with militarized cops, vigilantes with a badge, who have almost absolute discretion to decide who is a threat, and what constitutes resistance, and how harshly they can deal with the citizens they were appointed to serve and protect. It doesn't matter where you live, big city or small town, it's the same scenario being played out over and over again, in which government agents, hyped up on their own authority and power of the uniform, ride roughshod over the rights of the citizenry. These warrior cops who have been trained to act as judge, jury, and executioner in their interactions with the public, and believe the lives and rights of police should be valued more than citizens, are increasingly outnumbering the good cops who take seriously their oath of office to serve and protect their fellow citizens, uphold the Constitution, and maintain the peace. Indeed, if you ask police and their enablers what Americans should do to stay alive during encounters with law enforcement, they will tell you to comply, cooperate, obey, not resist, not argue, not make threatening gestures or statements, avoid sudden movements, and submit to a search of their person and belongings during encounters with the police. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're in the right. It doesn't matter if a cop is in the wrong. It doesn't matter if you're being treated with less than the respect you deserve. If you want to emerge from a police encounter with your life and body intact, then you'd better comply, submit, obey orders, respect authority, and generally do whatever a cop tells you to do. In this way, the old police motto to protect and serve has become comply or die. This is the unfortunate, misguided, perverse message that has been beaten, shot, tasered, and slammed into our collective consciousness over the past few decades, and it has taken root. This is how we have gone from a nation of laws, where the least among us had just as much right to be treated with dignity and respect as the next person, in principle at least, to a nation of law enforcers, revenue collectors with weapons who treat we the people like suspects and criminals. As a result, Americans as young as four years old are being leg-shackled, handcuffed, tasered, and held at gunpoint for not being quiet, not being orderly, and just being childlike, not being compliant enough. Americans as old as 95 are being beaten, shot, and killed for questioning an order, hesitating in the face of a directive, and mistaking a policeman crashing through their door for a criminal breaking into their homes, i.e. not being submissive enough. And Americans of every age and skin color are continuing to die at the hands of a government that sees itself as the judge, jury, and executioner over a populace that have been prejudged and found guilty stripped of their rights and left to suffer at the hands of government agents trained to respond with the utmost degree of violence. At a time when a growing number of unarmed people have been shot and killed for just standing a certain way or moving a certain way or holding something, anything, that police could misinterpret to be a gun or igniting some trigger-centric fear in a police officer's mind that has nothing to do with an actual threat for their safety, even the most benign encounters with police can have fatal consequences. The problem, as one reporter rightfully, uh, rightly concluded, is not that life has gotten that much more dangerous. It's that authorities have chosen to respond to even innocent situations as if it were a war zone. Warrior cops trained in the worst-case scenario and thus ready to shoot first and ask questions later are definitely not making us or themselves any safer. Worse, militarized police increasingly pose a risk to anyone undergoing a mental health crisis or with special needs whose disabilities may not immediately be apparent, 
or require more finesse than the typical freeze or I'll shoot tactics employed by Americans' police forces. Indeed, disabled individuals make up a third to half all people killed by law enforcement. People of color are three times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts. If you're black and disabled, you're even more vulnerable. Specifically, what we're dealing with today is a skewed shoot-to-kill mindset in which police, trained to view themselves as warriors or soldiers in a war, whether against drugs or terror or crime, must get the bad guy, i.e. anyone who is a potential target, before the bad guy gets them. This nationwide epidemic of court-sanctioned police violence carried out with impunity against individuals posing little or no real threat has all but guaranteed that unarmed Americans will keep dying at the hands of militarized police. Making matters worse when these officers, who have long since ceased to be peace officers, violate their oaths by bullying, beating, tasing, tasering, shooting, and killing their employers, the taxpayers to whom they owe their allegiance, they are rarely given more than a slap on their hands before resuming their patrol. This lawlessness on the part of law enforcement, an unmistakable characteristic of a police state, is made possible in large part by police unions, which routinely oppose civilian review of boards and resist the placement of names and badges, numbers on officer uniforms, police agencies that abide by the blue code of silence, the quiet understanding among police that they should not implicate their colleagues for the crimes and misconduct, prosecutors who treat police offenses with greater leniency than civilian offenses, courts that sanction police wrongdoings in the name of security, and legislatures that enhance the power, reach, and arsenal of the police, and a citizenry that fails to hold its government accountable to the rule of law. Indeed, not only are cops protected from most charges of wrongdoing, whether it's shooting unarmed citizens, including children and old people, raping and abusing young women, falsifying police reports, trafficking drugs, or soliciting sex with minors, but even on the rare occasion where they are fired for, for misconduct, it's only a matter of time before they get rehired again. Much of the credit for shielding these rogue cops goes to influential police unions and laws providing for qualified immunity. Police contracts that provide a shield of protection to officers accused of misdeeds and erect barriers to residents complaining of abuse. State and federal laws that allow police to walk away without paying a dime for the wrongdoing and rampant cronyism among government bureaucrats. It's happening all across the country. There is, this is no longer a debate over good cops and bad cops. It's a power struggle between police officers who rank their personal safety above everyone else's and police officers who understand that their jobs are to serve and protect, between police trained to shoot to kill and police trained to resolve situations peacefully. Most of all, it's between police who believe that law is on their side and police who know that they will be held to account for their actions under the same law as everyone else. Unfortunately, more and more police are being trained to view themselves as distinct from the citizenry, to view their authority as superior to the citizenry, and to view their lives as more precious than those of their citizen counterparts. Instead of being taught to see themselves as mediators and peacemakers whose lethal weapons are to be used as a last resort, they are being drilled into acting like gunmen with killer instincts who shoot to kill rather than merely incapacitate. Even so, the answer is not to defund the police. What we really need to do is defang the police, demilitarize, de-weaponize, and focus on de-escalation tactics, better training, and accountability. We've allowed the government to create an alternate reality in which the freedom is secondary to security and the rights of the citizenry are less important than the authority of the government. The longer we wait to burst the bubble of this false chimera, the harder it will be to return to time when police were public servants and freedom actually meant something, and the greater the risk to both police officers and the rest of the citizenry. The police state wants the us-versus-them dichotomy. It wants us to turn each other, other in, distrust each other, and be at each other's throats, while it continues amassing power. It wants police officers who act like the military and citizens who cower in fear. It wants a suspect society. It wants us to play by its rules instead of holding it accountable to the rule of law. Uh, and so on and so forth. End of the article. So your thoughts on this? Any surprise uh, that it's three people a day seems like a lot. It's a big country. And any comments on his solution to defang rather than defund the police? Um, that's all good and all, but I st I still think the bigger problem is just that the uh, that the laws are wrong. Okay. So I think if the laws were fixed, then we wouldn't need so many cops and wouldn't have so many cops, and they wouldn't be doing things that 
uh, are unnecessary. So, so let the police be. Talk to your legislator type of solution to get these bad laws repealed. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure it's that simple. It's probably a bigger problem with uh, what people are willing to put up with and the assumption that anything that the cops do is the right thing just because it's the law. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see it reversing course anytime soon. Okay. But I think it's a, I think, I think it's the same struggle that is, is affecting everything else. Uh, and it's, it's just uh, the assumption that the, the authority, wherever they are in the room, they, they must be, uh, they must be just because, well, they're powerful. Yeah. KS. One thing that's very disturbing is that I've read that the Arizona state legislature has recently passed a law saying that uh, it is a criminal act for someone to use their phone camera um, within eight feet. I think they've they've outlawed uh, any filming and uh, um, of uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, it, uh, I guess the law first was going to put the limit at 15 feet, then they said 8 feet, and I suppose this is the, uh, I mean, the, the, the very presence of cameras has done a lot to uh, hold police accountable, whereas otherwise it was one person's word against another, and you trusted the police over whoever was being charged. But now the camera is indisputable, and so uh, outlawing it, making it a criminal act to, to do the filming is, is also very disturbing. And by keeping people further away, of course, you get less of the audio um, version of what's happening, too. Yeah, that was, that was the one topic we, or the one article that we covered on last week's show, was that, you know, that they passed a law, jailed for 30 days for, for filming the police if you got too close and didn't, you know, didn't get their permission. Right, it, they had to give explicit permission for you to film that close. Otherwise, too bad, jail. I think uh, MC is absolutely right that the, the very first thing should be to eliminate all these laws that empower the <clears throat> the police to uh, to go after every aspect of people's lives. The the drug laws, of course, but also I would say even the uh, the tax laws. You know, the uh, income tax laws. I mean, they, they could make a neutral tax collection by the uh, sales tax or maybe the property tax, not entirely neutral because they still um, then uh, investigate a lot of personal background, but a lot less so than with the income tax and, uh, and I guess innumerable regulations and controls on society that are totally unnecessary. I guess my concern with that solution is like, what's the time frame on that, right? Like, how how long do we have to wait for them to repeal all the bad laws? You know what I mean? Like, how how is that the most viable solution to scale back um, the the vicious cycle of violence in the police? Is to wait for the legislature to repeal the bad laws? And that's why I said it's a, big, a bigger issue. <laughs> yeah. of, you know, if the, if the overwhelming population was like, yeah, we don't need cops to do all these things for us. We can take care of ourselves. Um, then it would change really quick. But it's it's not. It's we we live in the uh, the Karen society <laughs> with a whole bunch of uh, control freaks, and they don't want to let go of even the stupidest law. Yeah. And KS mentioned the the income tax, right? Like, again, I'm not going to be for taxation, but the insidious thing about the income tax is the way it's collected from most people, right? It's withheld from your paycheck. You don't even see it. And then people get excited about getting a refund at the end of the year or at the, you know, at the end of tax season, right? Like, oh, I can't wait for my refund check. And I, I spend an inordinate amount of time reminding normies, right, that that was already your money, right? That was yours. They took it from you. They, they took it from you, got an interest-free loan from you, and then gave you back some of it, right? And, the, and some of the people were like, well, with the, with the child tax credit, I get back more than I paid. I go, well, then they took that from somebody else, right? That wasn't <laughs> yours to begin with. 
you did not earn that. You do not deserve that. Yet uh, somehow you get it. Um, but it, it excites people for the wrong reason. So if you want, if you want to like, you know, I, this is not a viable solution, but it would be interesting to see, right. Is if they were forced to actually collect it, right. If at the end of the year, they had to like send you the bill of what you owed rather than you telling them what you think you owed and getting money back. Right. How many people, how many people at the end of the year, like average normal working Americans who are like, you know, paycheck to paycheck, have the wherewithal to save up that money and pay that tax bill at the end of a year. They had to do that. They'd get nothing. I have a friend uh, who has a bakery and uh, every month when he, or every week when he hands out the the pay to his employees, he he collects a stack of $1 bills to uh, for each paycheck. And he hands it to them as a stack of bills, and as they're reaching for it to, to collect their pay, he says, wait, 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 now first I'm going to have to take off the Social Security tax, um, the, uh, the uh, state tax, the federal tax, the general excise tax, and so here is about half of, of it remaining for you. So that he visualizes this to each person rather than just a, a check uh, where you just look at the net uh, pay at the bottom line they actually see the uh, and it makes a strong point with the all of his employees yeah also it makes the point how much it costs him uh, not just uh, you know the the net pay and i think most people aren't aware of it they don't really think about it nor do they see the impact of inflation i mean right now i think i saw an article in uh, uh fee that's that calculated that probably the median cost or the the average cost to a family of four in the country is going to be about $5,300 just because of the cost of inflation, which is almost uh, all unobserved by the general public. They think prices go up, that affects everybody the same, but it really affects families on fixed incomes uh, and retirees especially. Yeah, and I've talked about this before. I don't. It, people are seeing it, um, but they they misapply the responsibility of it, right? Like if, if if you're living to paycheck to paycheck, or you know, close to your means as a as an average working class individual, um, you've noticed the inflationary effects, right? But I think the the problem is a lot of people look at that and and they go like. These damn companies raising their prices, right? We talked about with the we talked about it with, with, within the last couple of weeks with the gas prices, because there was a meme on social media that goes like, "Hey, here's an idea. How about the gas companies just don't make as much profit, right? Like they're so goddamn profitable that there's no reason to raise the price of gas. They can just eat the eat eat that, be less profitable, and save the average American." Right. So the, the average American blames the gas companies, blames the supermarkets, blames the corporate, the big, bad corporations um, who are making a profit with all these rising prices um, rather than, you know, blaming the state for debasing their currency. Yeah, I think it was Keynes who said that um, inflation uh, is uh, the the most it was the way that with all which all governments by debauching currency can take uh, secretly and unobserved the great portion of the wealth of the population. Keynes himself was uh, would probably be a bit surprised at how far people have taken his um, his wedge uh, into public policy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. It's, it's one thing to understand it, right? Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think those in power are stupid necessarily, right? I, I think that they understand what um, following the policy prescriptions of Keynesian economics does, and they're okay with it because they're intelligent enough to know that they're at the top of that food chain and are going to reap the benefits of it at the expense of everyone else, right? 
they they can't they can't get to that i don't believe that they can get to that level of power and influence and be ignorant to economic effects right they knew that printing more money was going to wreck the economy and they lucked into a war with russia and ukraine uh to scapegoat it right like they knew they could they couldn't not have known and they went shit the people are stupid let's just tell them it's putin's fault and you get half the country believing that there it's a it's an easily manipulated populace um because the average person isn't well enough educated to see through it and so they get taken advantage of yeah that's very true um all the journalists that I know of, uh, I mean, that I've heard or, or read about and so on, seem to focus in on the inflation is rooted in this war or uh, supply sh- uh, uh, bottlenecks and stuff like that. And I have, I don't think I have yet ever seen in the media a chart showing, except by John Stossel. John Stossel had it, but no one else showed the massive increase in the quantity of money that the government printed in the last two years, 40% increase yeah. in the monetary base. And only John Stossel has made a point of that nowhere else. Yeah. And he got run out of, you know, regular positions at on mainstream media television, right. For right. sharing oh, those yeah. opinions with the vast majority of people, you know, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who was talking about it, but there was, there was an exchange that I've heard about, you know, the, the mainstream media and, the, you know, they were interviewing somebody and the, the host of the show um, basically said, like, so you think I'm part of the machine? Like, you think I don't, I can't think for myself. And <clears throat> the, the guest basically responded with the idea that it's not that I believe that you are, but the moment you start to think for yourself and express those opinions you will be replaced by someone who is right. Like you, you are allowed to express a range of acceptable opinions. And the moment you deviate from that, you'll be fired. Something will happen, right? A scandal will befall you. Um, and the, whoever takes your place will tow the company line because there's enough people out there willing to tow the company line that there's no, there's no place for you in the mainstream debate or the mainstream press, right? So you're never going to find that in the mainstream, right? Those who control those outlets will make sure that what is, what is produced, displayed uh, on television, on radio, like falls within that range of acceptable debate um, or else. And so you have to go to other sources of media, uh, other sources of news, other, you know, platforms, if you will, to find what these other, um, what these other takes on things are right. Like the Russian Ukraine thing. Uh, I still read RT. The first article we had today was from RT.com. Now, a lot of that, you know, if you can sift through the commentary, there were some facts in there. And if you can verify those facts with other sources and eliminate, you know, from your mind, uh, the commentary that goes along with it, well, then you'll get the facts for the most part, but you won't get the commentary. You won't get, you know, you, you, you won't get the, the uh, well-choreographed mainstream narrative. KS? Well, yeah, I agree, you know, 100%. Sorry, it, it's difficult because it sounds like you, like you unmute, so I think you want to talk, and then you... Oh, sorry, yeah. That's okay. It's just it, when, when, I, when I hear the noise, I go, oh, you've got something to say. But yeah, so that's, you know, that's, that's the way it is. And, you know, if we take this back to the, you know, the police violence, you had that, the, the whole run up right to the election was, you know, the, the police are out of control, defund the police, you know, and now what? Now nothing. They refunded, remilitarized. One of the problems I had, you know, with it before was um, a lot of times, you know, the, the veterans coming home from war right? Like where, where are they being hired? Well, a lot of times they're being hired by the police. And so they bring that mentality with them. They're already trained, right? But it's, it's a whole different scenario. Um, and I think that is another contributing factor 
uh, to the police violence around. Like they, 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 they hire ex-military, they, they bring in, you know, military weaponry. There was another uh, hot take within the last couple of weeks, right? Like the, the American police are so um, overburdened, I guess, with military weaponry that they were allowed to send some to the Ukraine, right? Like Ukraine was getting donations from American police departments for, for war, for war gear, like battle gear, right? That was stuff that was here at American police departments, right? Tools of war, weapons of war, good enough to fight, you know, against the Russians in Ukraine. Um, but they had it. They had enough of it. They had enough that they could like dip into their supply and donate some to the war effort and still believe that they had enough to do their job locally. That's a scary thought. Well, you, you've made a, a, a good point about how good it is that there are alternative choices to go to in the media. Um, and I, I think one of your articles, one of your headlines talks about the, uh, the weapons issue that at the very same time that the, the countries are tougher and tougher on their own citizens owning guns, they seem to have an abundance of weapons to offer to Ukraine a little bit late in a sense. You'd have to say that, uh, if the Ukrainians had been allowed to own guns and be trained at it and experienced and all, they would have been much better prepared. And maybe even the invasion wouldn't have even occurred because people would have been expecting the pushback that they've already gotten. I'm kind of surprised that they have been as effective as they have been uh, with weapons newly uh, obtained, you know, because it takes training for sophisticated weaponry. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you caught the interview. I caught a highlight of the interview probably several weeks ago at this point. I think it was Sean Hannity and Tulsi Gabbard. Did you see this one at all? Does that ring a bell to either of you? No, I didn't. No. Okay. I don't watch that. She went on and, you know, Sean Hannity was, I think if, if, if it wasn't Sean Hannity, I apologize. That's the name ringing in my head right now. Um, but Tulsi Gabbard went on, you know, to interview there. And she basically said like, Ukraine should give up, right? It's an unwinnable war. You, you're not going to beat the might of the Russian military, especially if they have a nuclear option, right? And so Zelensky and the whole Ukraines or whatever should not have been goaded into, into a proxy war because they had no chance of winning. Like it was, it was a losing battle to begin with. Um, and Sean Hannity or whoever it was, um, Basically, you know, like the retort was, well, you know, they won't go nuclear because that's mutually assured destruction, right? Russia has nukes. America has nukes. If Russia uses nukes on Ukraine, Americans will use nukes. And all of a sudden it was like a, a, a push for nuclear war, right? Beyond just the, the battles that are going on. Um, but it was also interesting, you know, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Democrat, uh, presidential candidate in the last round probably had the most anti-war position amongst all candidates across the board. Um, did, do you find that that position surprising at all that she would call for no war, but you know, just to give up to the might of, of the Russian military? I find it very surprising from her because I don't see that as, I mean, I, I see her catering to, um, a different audience than the, than the normal left wing type of audience, and no, it does it does sound very contrary to what I ex- would have expected from her. Okay. Uh, but I, I think uh, everyone was surprised at how effective the Ukrainian pushback was, especially when you saw how you know easy the Russians had it in Georgia, how they easy they had it in two thousand fourteen <clears throat> against. Um, the Crimea and those other regions. Um, and yes, if there's a nuclear exchange, it's not going to be with the West. I mean, if they use tactical nuclear weapons um, in Ukraine, the rest of the world may be outraged, but Ukraine would be crushed. And I think if the way Putin handled the Chechnya, if that's an indication of what is yet to come, he still has a huge hammer in his pocket, even without nuclear weapons, um, 
you know, just, just if he just ignores popular opinion completely, and I think that's probably becoming more problematic for him. But in any case, if he ignored world opinion entirely, he could still do some real severe damage to Ukraine and get them to uh, um, to uh, acquiesce. But I don't really know what he's... I mean, he couldn't possibly imagine occupying and controlling the whole of Ukraine in the distant future. He's got to be thinking only of those eastern provinces. Well, if you believe he's got a hammer yet that hasn't fallen, does that not bolster her position that they should have just... Uh, acquiesced, given up, surrendered from the beginning to avoid all the bloodshed, all the turmoil, right? Well, I, I don't avoid the war know. entirely. Just give up. I don't think we're going to know until it happens. Okay. Well, I mean, KS believed until it. Until it's to, over. You know, yeah, obviously true. But KS believed that there was another hammer to fall before it went nuclear. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Here's the, here's the article you were mentioning, uh, KS. Biden exploits Sacramento shooting to ban guns for Americans while sending billions in guns to Ukraine. According to the anti-gun group Giffords Law Center, the state of California has the strictest gun laws in the nation. The state was one of the first in the nation to enact an extreme risk protection order law, the questionable red flag confiscation law, which failed to stop Kevin Douglas Limbaugh from obtaining an illegal gun and going on a shooting spree. The state also has the most robust system in the country for removing firearms from people who become prohibitive from having them, which consistently fails to keep the guns out of the hands of criminals. The anti-gun lobby in the state has banned high-capacity magazines and cracked down on assault weapons. They've made it so Californians have to pass a background check to purchase ammunition. They've prohibited buyers from having ammo or ghost gun parts shipped directly to their homes. Yet, despite these strict gun laws... The state's capital city experienced its deadliest shooting ever this weekend. At least one of the guns recovered from the scene bypassed all these laws. Six people were fatally shot and another dozen were injured when multiple shooters opened fire in downtown Sacramento as people flooded out of bars and restaurants around 2 a.m. on Sunday, officials said. So what's the logical next step for Team Disarm America? Take the strict laws even further. There, the gun laws... Obviously not strict enough because we're still having a problem. Senator, uh, State Senator Bob Hertzberg said after a suspect was arrested for his role in the shooting on Monday. The president is also refusing to let this tragedy go to waste and he immediately took to the teleprompter after the shooting to call for more gun control. We must do more than mourn. We must act. President Joe Biden said in a statement on Sunday after the shooting. Ban ghost guns. Require background checks for all gun sales. Ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines. Repeal gun manufacturers' immunity from liability. As a portion of these guns used in the shooting were illegal, none of these actions would have prevented the shooting. <clears throat> Biden's statement on Sunday comes on the heels of a unilateral push the president promised to make by this summer using executive orders to further disarm Americans and turn them into felons. Biden's first executive order will criminalize popular pistol braces. As it stands, roughly 40 million Americans use these devices to stabilize their firearm, and this executive order could turn them into criminals overnight. The second executive order being rammed through by the Biden administration will force citizens to register their 80% lowers, officially called a receiver blank by the ATF. An 80% lower is an unfinished receiver that isn't considered a firearm until the purchaser finishes it at home. Biden likes to call these ghost guns to scare folks, but they are really just modifications for people who like to tweak their firearms. Under this executive order, millions of gun owners will also be subject to criminal law overnight. This push to disarm Americans comes at a time when more Americans are arming themselves than ever before. The anti-gun sentiment in this country has plummeted since 2020 and has continued to decline ever since. Despite the exploitation of tragedies, Americans are wisening up to the fact that their government cannot keep them safe and that responsibility falls on them individually. Americans are also watching what happens when a country is forced to defend itself against an invading force. After Russian troops began crossing Ukraine's border, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky began arming citizens. Days later, the Biden administration approved of billions in aid for Ukraine, which went towards even more weapons to help Ukrainians fend off their invaders. 
Since then, even more money and weapons have poured into the country at the expense of the U.S. taxpayers. After the Biden administration began arming Ukrainians, the notoriously anti-gun left began praising the act. In a hypocritical twist of irony, the staunchly anti-gun liberals and Occupy Democrats took to praising the arming of Ukrainian citizens, finally realizing that the Second Amendment is not for hunting. Unfortunately, just like cognitive dissonance blocks many Americans from seeing the horrific and murderous war crimes of their own government, it also allows them to think that disarming citizens domestically while arming citizens abroad is logically consistent. The good news is that more people than ever now own guns and sales continue to increase. And unlike David Hogg, who would lead you to believe it's not just men, in fact, story after story has furthered the narrative that black women are the fastest growing group of gun owners in the country. As the tragedy in Sacramento illustrates, government cannot keep you safe, nor can government keep guns out of the hands of people who want to do harm. The only thing government-sponsored gun control accomplishes is to ensure that the only people who have guns are criminals and government employees, all the while keeping law-abiding citizens disarmed. End of the article. So, I mean, tragic, yes. Um, Call for more gun control, I'm going to say no. Uh, But your thoughts, MC, KS, should should they be more gun control while sending the uh, arms to Ukraine or should they also arming or they, should the arming also stop? I think there should be more, uh, gun training in high schools <laughs> and, uh, more gun ownership. Did you get gun training in high school? No, I had a uh, gun training from uh, my dad who was a police officer. Uh, boo, but okay. <laughs> Firearm, firearms instructor. Yeah, there you go. That's better. <laughs> we'll call him that. KS. Yeah. Um, you're, you're you're a little bit uh, older than than the two of us. Any gun training in high school? Uh, no, no, definitely not in in high school. Uh, my my parents didn't own guns, and probably it never even occurred to them to to own a gun. Uh, some of my friends did, you know, for uh, quail hunting or or target practice. Uh, I don't think that I I think I went once and shot a 12 gauge shotgun okay. at some targets out in the, in the desert, but training as such with a, with a trainer, I don't think I ever had that as okay. such. Um, yeah. I feel like I'm on the cusp of a generation because I didn't get like formal training per se in high school. Um, but the summer school preceding high school was probably the first time I interacted with a firearm that I can recall, right? So exiting eighth grade to get into the high school that I went to in Hawaii, you had to take summer school preceding your freshman year. And part of summer school was rifle class at the ROTC range on campus. So that was like, there was, you know, I guess it was part of uh, ROTC or PE. I don't even know what the grade was, Um, but it was, there was a marksmanship grade. Like you had, you, you know, they showed you how to do it. They taught you how to hold it. They showed you, you know, they did the dominant eye test, taught you how to line up the sights. And then we fired like little 22s downrange at the school on the campus. <clears throat> Everyone required to do that. Or was it just uh, whoever chose marksmanship class? As far as I know, everyone, because I didn't pick that. I didn't check that off a box. That was like, you have this, again, this was, you know, unless, unless you were, um, unless you went to the middle school for your, for you guys who live there, um, this is St. Louis school. So private Catholic, uh, high school in Hawaii, um, who at the time that I, at the time that I went there also had sixth, seventh and eighth grade. So if you, if you were there in middle school and then entered the high school, you did not have to go through the summer school program. But everybody else, like who came from a normal elementary school or middle school, who was then entering high school, had to take this, you know, had to take these three months or two months or however long summer school was um, prior to prior to um, getting into the high school. And I think I think part of the reason that they did that was um, diagnostic, I guess. I I don't I can't think of the actual term that I'd like to use. but it was to see where everyone was at 
So they knew what classes to place you in as a freshman. Like, did are you going to be in the advanced class? Are you going to be in the normal class? Do you need to take remedial classes before you actually start taking the actual high school level classes, right? Um, and but But a part of this was marksmanship. Why? I don't know. I just went to class and they said, today we're going to the gun range, right? Uh, you know, maybe not in those exact words, but that was it. That was, that was part of it. We're going down to the gun range. You're going to shoot this rifle uh, at the target at the end of the range. Um, I felt relatively confident going into that because prior to that marksmanship training, we, you know, we had uh, BB guns and pellet guns and I was like, ah, I'm pretty good with one of those. So like, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens here. Um <laughs> Some of the scare, some, some kids were surprisingly, you know, well-trained, um, others not so much, but I don't, again, I feel like I'm on the cusp of a generation, um, because I've seen the photos of like parents' generations where it was acceptable for, you know, the, or grandparents' generations where it was acceptable for the student to like carry their hunting rifle to school, right. And set it aside in the classroom and then go hunting afterwards and carry it home or to have it mounted in the pickup truck that you drove to class or what, you know what I mean? And then I don't, you know, and, and then what was it? 99, when, when was the, the Columbine thing? Was it 98, 99, somewhere around there? Yeah. Okay. Like that, that was like the, so the beginning of my high school uh, tenure was marksmanship training. The end of my high school tenure was a school shooting. Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure that at least that started the, you know, no guns ever anywhere near any place that might, you know, have young people or students or whatever. Um, and to your point, uh, MC and KS, like that training has to happen, right? That training should be done. Um, the, the, the best way to avoid uh, a gun accident is to know how to use your firearm, Right. Because even the people who are very well trained, fuck it up. And there's enough YouTube videos, you know, of, of, of people, you know, of gun accidents on YouTube where you go like, damn, you know, if they can do it right, I should probably be even extra careful uh, with mine, especially if you're new. So getting, getting trained by someone, you know, imperative uh, to your point, if the Ukrainians were, were more well-trained um, leading up to the invasion, um, who knows what sort of resistance they could put, but you, th- you throw a rifle at him, you go like Russians are that way, you know, who knows what you're going to get, but d- go ahead. No, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, 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 it seems to me that the, the main thing you have to be conscious of is that you just don't ever l- allow the, the point of your gun to be pointing in somebody's direction. Uh, and it seems like with the, when people are very, more and more familiar with something and take it more and more for granted that they kind of become reckless about where they're pointing it. <laughs> and that's where the accidents occur. It, um, uh, it, it's sort of like flying too. I remember when they, when I was learning to fly that they said, well, the accidents aren't from the very first timer who's starting to fly, nor the very experienced person. It's the person in between who, who feels very comfortable with the new idea, the new technology, and they relax their guard yeah, um, and I suppose that's where it it goes awry with guns as well. Yeah, that's with with cars too. I'm sure. Um, one of one of the most famous firearms instructors, um, I'm going to say in the world, his name's like Masad Ayub. Are you familiar? Either are you familiar with that name? Nope. Okay. He he literally wrote the book. Like he's you know he's former law enforcement. And then, like, he wrote the book um, for the average citizen on how these things work, um, taking his taking the knowledge that he had um, in law enforcement and providing, you know, average people with the information that he was given in law enforcement. Um, so he's he's like the number one guy to to, you know, for firearms training, like the the top leading expert in the world. Um and if that's not correct, somewhere near that echelon, right? Um, and to my surprise, so I'm like, you know, I'm reading some news articles, watching some videos, whatever, and up pops one where um, he himself had a negligent discharge at a gun class that he was instructing, 
you know, basically going through the motions, right, was like demonstrating how a revolver works, you know, opened up the chamber, uh, opened up the cylinder, I should say, verified that there was nothing in the cylinder, closed it, pointed it up in the air, squeezed the trigger, and bang, fired off around into the air to the shock and dismay of the, you know, 20 some odd students that he was instructing. Right. And to your point, KS, it's most likely because he wasn't really doing anything except for going through the motions. Right. This is what I do. I open the cylinder. I look it, I check to see that it's empty. I close it and I'm going through the motions. Um, but he didn't actually check it. Right. Cause there was a live round in there. Didn't magically appear. It couldn't not have, it couldn't have been in the barrel and not been in the cylinder, you know, cause it's a revolver. So he couldn't have missed it that way. Just missed it. Um, so training, training, very important and not letting the expertise or the training, um, go to your head. You know, I was, I don't know how much I'm, I'm going to do my best to not discuss this too much. Um, but there was a community member here, I think last year or the year before, maybe the year before 2020, 2021. I don't remember either 2020 or 2021. I think 2020 or 2021. Damn it. Either way, one of those years, um, was like starting his own film production, um, you know, of a, of an old movie. And, you know, he's like, he put out the call for community members like, Hey, if you want to be a part of this movie, like, you know, here's what I'm doing. And I'm like, ah, sure. You know, I, I look mean, I could be a bad guy, you know? And it was like, okay, here's the scene we're shooting. Um, bring your firearms, you know, cause bad guys carry guns. And so we did. And at one point he's like, okay, I am going to check all the guns, right? I'm going to clear all the weapons. Like he's former military as well. I'm going to clear all the weapons. And then at some point, you know, part of the scene is you draw, you point, keep your finger off the trigger, but you point like your real firearm at your co, you know, your, your co-actor. Um, and like, okay, like you, I cleared it, you cleared it, you know, whatever. And at some point he goes like, can I just check it again? And I, you know, I'm not going to speculate on why, but I'm like, Dude, whatever you need, man. Like, I'm not trying to, you know, I am not trying to shoot anybody like this, you know, where this is, this is, this is filming. You check it as many times as you need to verify that nothing bad is going to happen. And I'm still not going to pull the trigger. Right. You know, so, sort of a thing. Um, and so we checked it again and similar to, you know, the, the negligent discharge that, you know, we're talking about, it could have been because. The first time he checked it, he was just going through the motions because he had done it with every firearm up until that point. You know, he does it all the time and he probably, you rack it, you slide it, blah, 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 blah. And you just, you go through the motions instead of actually performing the act. And so it's easy, it's easy to make mistakes. So if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to plan, if you're planning, right, if you're on the left and you're planning on like arming the citizenry when the United States is invaded, right? you could be in for a world of hurt as much like, the, uh, you know, much like the Ukrainians, not everyone's going to be well-trained at that point. If you confiscate all the firearms up front. So rather than, you know, call for more bans, more restrictions, more laws, uh, that criminals will get around anyway, just r- relax it. Right. Like I'm, I'm in new England. Uh, and I think we got like, you know, three of the safest States, in the country, right? Like Vermont, uh, Maine and New Hampshire is like up there as the safest. And it's basically constitutional carry across the board, right? Like never go South into Massachusetts because their laws are stupid and suck too. But you know, Maine, Maine, Vermont and New Hampshire, um, pretty, pretty top notch when it comes to firearm laws. Um, and safe for the most part. Now are the shootings? Sure. Happens everywhere. Um, but it's not, no one's calling for more laws, more bans, you know, weird capacity magazines, right? The weirdest, the weirdest thing here is that the, the gun shops have to carry like mass compliance stuff, which is dumb. Like, oh yeah, if you're coming up here for mass, 
you know, with the permits and whatever, like we've got your 10 round magazine to go with the standard capacity magazine that other residents of other states are allowed to have. So, and it's just better here. That is get, get, you don't even have to get trained. Some people like look at that as a negative, right? But that means the people in training, like volunteer, do it because they want to get better and they want to improve and they come for that. So it works. Any other thoughts? Nope. Final thoughts. All right. That'll wrap it up then. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com on telegram t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to y'all next week. Peace. Aloha. <laughs>